0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. In fact, greetings if you're just passing by and listening to this podcast for the first time. I hope that you'll benefit from it. I hope that you will appreciate it. It's simply an attempt to help us work through some of the sermons that were preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man taken up with Christ in so many wonderful ways, just delighted with the the beauties and the glories that belong to Jesus of Nazareth as the saviour of sinners. And that delighted him himself, and it delighted him as he held that Christ out to others we read through the sermons week by week. If you're interested in knowing more about that, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's at Reading Spurgeon. And each week there, we uh, identify the sermons we're going to read day by day, but we zero in on one particular sermon for those who might only be willing or able to read one a week. And so, Uh, This week we're looking at Sermon 139 and the title for that sermon is Christ Lifted Up. If you'd like to read it, you can sign up for a newsletter at Media Gratiae's website and they will send out to you the, the weekly readings so that you can either follow along day by day or week by week as you wish. Christ lifted up then is a sermon taken from John 12 and verse 32 and I if I be lifted up will draw all men unto me and it was preached on the 5th of July 1857 at the Music Hall the Royal Surrey Gardens now our our preacher Spurgeon tells us that this was an extraordinary occasion upon which the Savior uttered these words and he Uh, reaches into the the Greek to say that this is the crisis of the world. This is the the hinge of history. This is the most significant moment in the entire history of the globe. It is the judgment of the world. It is the crisis of the world. It is the turning point of global history and it has to do with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a A stunning introduction, and it's uh, designed to grip us and to turn our attention to this issue then of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. What's going to happen as Christ is lifted up? And the Lord tells us the result The Prince of the world shall be cast out, and I will draw all men unto me. That's the outcome of this critical moment in the history of the world. And it's that second outcome upon which Spurgeon wants to concentrate that Christ says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And he wants to concentrate on that declaration uh, under three headings that Christ crucified is Christ's own glory, that Christ crucified is the minister's theme, and that Christ crucified is the heart's attraction. His own glory, the minister's theme, the heart's attraction. And here you, you just have to marvel at Spurgeon's knack for simplicity. This is a, a really good example of of what it means to open up a text simply and practically, effectively. Uh, it's easy to follow. It enables him to point in various different directions to cover quite a lot of territory in a relatively short span of time. The language is all straightforward It's going to flow naturally out of the text that he's chosen. It really is a delightful example of how we might preach uh, if we are to uh, seek, like Spurgeon, to hold up the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rich with doctrine. It's full of practical importance. So first of all, then, Christ's crucifixion is Christ's glory. And our Lord uses the language of being lifted up to express the manner of his death. He took the outward and visible fashion of the cross and in that he was lifted up as the type and symbol of the glory with which the cross should invest even him. The cross, he says, is Christ's glory because love is always glorious, because Christ won much glory by his fortitude, by his persevering strength because it was the completion of all his work, and because it was the hour of his triumph. So he's really asking, how can it be that someone dying on the cross, someone undergoing this cruel and cursed death, could be said to find glory in it and from it? And here are his answers. Love is always glorious. Christ won more love by the cross than he ever won anywhere else and Jesus would never have been so loved if he had simply sat in heaven forever. It is the work that he has done that draws out our hearts in love toward him. It is the sacrifice that he made for us that brings him the glory of our love for him. He was never so lifted up as when he was cast down. And the Christian bears witness, says Spurgeon, that though he loves his master anywhere, yet nothing moves his heart to rapture and vehemence of love like the story of the crucifixion and the agonies of Calvary. Now I think we need to pause and ask, is is that actually true of us? Do we marvel? Do we wonder? Do we weep? Do we rejoice over a crucified Christ? Do we see his sacrifice? He who though he was rich yet for our sakes became poor and does that draw out a love that brings glory to our Lord Jesus Christ? Then again Christ won much glory by his fortitude. It was uh, a a demonstration of his courage, of his perseverance. It was being his way to honour and it's by his sufferings and death, that our Lord has brought such glory to himself, his strong endurance, his intrepid spirit, his unconquerable love. We see his majesty, we see his strength, we see his commitment to his people. And then there's completion. The completion of an enterprise is the harvest of its honor, says Spurgeon. Though thousands have perished in the Arctic regions and have obtained fame for their intrepid conduct, yet the man who at last discovers the passage is the most of all honored. What he's saying is that we, we tend, and in some senses quite properly, to reserve our highest praises for those who have made the greatest accomplishments. It's not just the trying that we reward, it's the succeeding It's not just the effort that we recognize, it's the accomplishment. And Christ not only labored, but succeeded. Christ not only exerted himself, but he actually accomplished his his purpose, his end. He preferred the sufferings of Calvary to the honors of the multitude who crowded round about about him. For preachers he might, and bless them as he might, and heal them as he might, still was his work undone until he lays down his life. And then again, Christ's crucifixion is the hour of his triumph. His disciples thought that the cross would be a degradation. Christ knew it was a true exaltation. He knew the shame, but despised it. He was prepared to endure it all. He saw it as the gate of triumph, as the portal of victory. Oh, says Spurgeon, shall I tell you what I shall behold upon the cross, just when my eye is swimming with the last tear, and when my heart is palpitating with its last pang, just when my body is rent with its last thrill of anguish? then mine eye shall see the head of the dragon broken, it shall see hell's towers dismantled and its castle fallen. Here's the preacher and he's in his imagination with all the force of his intellect, he's he's as it were trying to climb into the experience of the Lord Jesus. What was going through his mind at that moment when he gives up the ghost? It is not destruction, it is not degradation, it is the moment of his victory. And Christ saw in his cross the victories of it, and therefore he longed for it as being the place of victory and the means of conquest. If he is lifted up there, he will be exalted, and he puts his crucifixion as being his glory. Now it's an interesting angle that Spurgeon takes, because it's it's not so much the the glory that belongs to Christ having been crucified. And it's not even the demonstration that Christ makes of his glory. It's the glory he gets because we love him as he dies, because we love him as he suffers, because we love him as he accomplishes, because we love him as he triumphs. It's the the response to his work that glorifies Christ as he dies. But he has another lifting up, says Spurgeon. And now he's moving, if you will, into a more um, illuminating, illustrative, metaphorical sense that we lift up a crucified Christ on the pole of the gospel in the preaching of the word. Christ came into the world to save sinners and he does that as he is lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. And so Christ is the minister's great theme in opposition to a thousand other things which most men choose. That must be the focus and the concentration of every true Christian ambassador's uh, labors. Now Spurgeon says something here that is fascinating. If you have read through Spurgeon's sermons in any degree, even if you've read the ones that we've identified week by week as particularly helpful, I think you would have to acknowledge that Spurgeon is unusually bold, unusually consistent, unusually fervent in his presentation of the horrors of damnation. He is, in contrast to most modern preachers, very much taken up with the fact of hell and judgment. But here he says, I would prefer that the most prominent feature in my ministry should be the preaching of Christ Jesus. Christ should be most prominent, not hell and damnation. Now listen to what he says going on. God's ministers must preach God's terrors as well as God's mercies. We are to preach the thunder of God's law. If men will sin, we are to tell them that they must be punished for it. If they will transgress, woe unto the watchman who is ashamed to say, The Lord comes who takes vengeance. We should be unfaithful to the solemn charge which God has given us if we were wickedly to stifle all the threatenings of God's word. It is ours to speak as he spoke and not to mince the matter. There's no mercy to men in hiding their doom. Now, Spurgeon, as we've seen, is hot on this. Spurgeon is unashamed of declaring the judgments of God. But, he says, terrors never ought to be the prominent feature of a minister's preaching. Sometimes right solemnly the sacred mysteries of eternal wrath must be preached, but far oftener let us preach the wondrous love of God. There are more souls won by wooing than by threatening. It is not hell, but Christ we desire to preach. O sinners, we are not afraid to tell you of your doom, but we do not choose to be forever dwelling on that doleful theme. So there's really two important lessons for us to learn here. On the one hand, we ought to preach hell and damnation far more than we do. But on the other that must never become as it were the obsession of our ministry however much we preach that it must be christ whom we hold up higher and more earnestly and more consistently and most prominently and and actually that should impel us, that should encourage us, that should direct us to preach Christ. For if we have anything of Christ's heart for the lost, not only will we warn them of the wrath which is to come, but we will also entreat them to come to him who delivers from the wrath which is to come. So Christ should be more prominent than hell and damnation. He's not saying, don't preach judgment. What he's saying is, insofar as you faithfully preach judgment, make sure that you also hold up Christ as your great theme. Again, he goes on, the cre- the theme of a minister should be Christ Jesus in opposition to mere doctrine. Now again, there's no problem with doctrine in itself. Uh, but he says, some of his brothers are always preaching doctrine they are separating as it were the truth of Christ from Christ himself he wants people to say of him he was not ashamed of the doctrines he was not afraid of threatening but he seemed as if he preached the threatening with tears in his eyes and the doctrine solemnly as God's own word but when he preached of Jesus his tongue was loosed and his heart was at liberty he's saying some people are so concerned about correctness in doctrine they they set themselves up as the the umpires over all spirits they're concerned with accuracy they're concerned with soundness they're the guard dogs of their age they'd be the the watch bloggers of uh, bitter spirit perhaps if they were around today and Spurgeon says that soundness is too often a mere sound it's doctrine which doesn't enter the core of the heart nor affect the being so he says again the point is not leave out the glorious doctrines but put Christ over the head of the doctrine make the doctrine the throne for Christ to sit on don't put Christ at the bottom and press him down and overload him with the doctrines of his own word so that you cannot see Christ for for this heap of dry truths se- separated from Christ himself it's a fine distinction but an important one then holding up Christ in opposition to mere morality just outward goodness And Spurgeon says, preaching morality is the way to make a man godless. People, in their attempts to reform and make people moral, actually lead from morality. Moral preaching has no effect, it leads to downright infidelity. We must preach Christ and Him crucified. Uh, Believe and be saved is not contrary to true morality. But saying be good will never lead to true gospel goodness. And then one last remark, the minister ought to preach Christ in opposition to some who think they ought to preach learning. Now, this, I think, is uh, becoming one of the great challenges of our own age. We're obsessed with academic credibility in the church of Jesus Christ, less concerned with spiritual vitality. A great preacher, says Spurgeon, according to the opinion of some, is a man who is called intellectual. That is to say, a man who knows more about the Bible than the Bible knows about itself. A man who can explain all mysteries by intellect merely, who smiles at anything like unction and savour, or the influence of God's spirit as being mere fanaticism. Now again, Spurgeon is not crying down true learning. Spurgeon is not neglecting the cultivation of the intellect. Spurgeon is not against academic attainment. But if it is academic attainment for its own sake, if it's a mere intellectual exploration, if there's no heart to it, if there's no heat to it, Christ wants us to preach the good word of life in the simplest manner possible. He wants us to hold out the Christ of truth. And so Spurgeon says, Saxon before every language in the world. When every one has died out for want of power, Saxon will live and triumph with its iron tongue and its voice of steel. We must have the common, plain language in which to address the people. And that must be Christ lifted up, Christ crucified, without the gauds and fripperies of learning, without the trappings of attempted eloquence or oratory. Now, even in that sentence, you would sort of say there's there's a fair amount of things there that are Saxon, and there's uh, perhaps a few bits and pieces that aren't. Uh, Spurgeon, again, is not trying to be inconsistent, but he's insisting upon simplicity and plainness and not mere cleverness and not trying to show how much we know or think we know. And so he comes on to the third point, which is indeed the essence of the text, the attractive power of the cross of Christ. So he's got, if you like, the real glory of Christ in his crucifixion. He's got the holding up of Christ in the preaching of the gospel. And he says the point of it all, ultimately, is that the heart would be drawn to Jesus Christ. And he's got several illustrations again here's some of that vividness here's some of that simplicity here's some of that gripping saxon sense that he's trying to use to to bring people that christ draws as a trumpet that christ draws as the cords of as a net that christ draws as the cords of love that christ draws as a standard or a banner and he runs through these a trumpet to attract an audience to the reading of a proclamation. And the question goes up, how are we to get the working classes to listen to the word? Are you encouraged by the fact that that question is still being asked today, or was at least being asked then? Aren't you thinking, shouldn't we have figured this out by now? Well, Spurgeon has. Christ is his own attraction. Christ is the only trumpet that you want to trumpet Christ. Preach the gospel and the congregation will come of themselves. Now I think we're inclined to say well I've tried that and it doesn't work. Well maybe we haven't really tried it or maybe we haven't tried it with faith. Spurgeon says that he will find in almost every case that the man who attracted the greatest mass of people to hear them have been the most evangelical. He says do you have an empty church? Do you want to fill it? He says, here's the recipe. Burn all your manuscripts, give up your notes, read your Bible and preach it as you find it in the simplicity of its language. Give up your Latinized English. Tell the people what you felt in your own heart and beseech the Holy Spirit to make your heart as hot as a furnace for zeal. Then go out and talk to the people. Speak to them like their brother. Be a man amongst men. Tell them what you felt and what you know and tell it heartily with a good bold face. And I do not care who you are. You will get a congregation. Now, We have to remember where and when Spurgeon is operating and the blessing of God at that particular time. But I think our inclination is to make our excuses and leave. I think our inclination is to say, no, we already know that doesn't work, rather than to say we will preach Christ publicly and privately, congregationally and individually. Says Spurgeon, it's not just the style of preaching, it's the style of feeling. It's not mimicry, it's a man who's, whose heart is taken up and who lifts up his voice like a trumpet to make known the Christ that he knows. But, he says, it's not enough just to get a crowd. How do you bring people in? Well, Christ is a net to draw men unto him, souls are caught by preaching Christ. Preach a sermon full of Christ. Throw it to your congregation as you throw a net into the sea. You don't even need to look where they are or try to fit your sermon to different cases. It says Christ will bring people to him. If we wish to have sinners saved and to have our churches increased, if we desire the spread of God's kingdom, the only thing whereby we can hope to accomplish the end is the lifting up of Christ. For he has said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Now again, Spurgeon is not advocating a kind of a shallow or a crass sort of preaching. What he's saying is that if we get this right, the gospel will do the work. It is God's own promise. And then Christ draws as the cords of love that once we've been brought, Christ keeps us. It's the preaching of Christ that binds us to Him and to one another. Christian, he says you'll never walk aright, you'll never keep in the orbit of truth if it's not for the influence of Christ perpetually attracting you to the center. This is one of the reasons why as preachers we go on preaching the gospel. Because that the likeness and the character and the love and the embrace of Jesus Christ these things, this one, this man, this Saviour, held up in the preaching, not only draws but keeps the heart. we are continually attracted to him, we hold fast to him, and that's one of the great things that keeps us from sinning and Then Christ is the standard at the centre of the gathering. Here's the reality of true Christian union, evangelical union. Says Spurgeon, I am not in alliance with a brother of the Church of England. I would not be in alliance with him if he were ever so good a man, but I would be in union with him. And he's making a distinction here between alliance and union. I would love him with all my heart, he says, but I wouldn't make a mere alliance with him. He wasn't my enemy and he never shall be. And therefore it's not alliance I want, but union. There's spiritual togetherness uh, spiritual shared reality and so it's not by uh, building these denominations and 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 forcing together different people it's not by overlooking the real differences that there are between different convictions about the the very essence of the church for example as between Spurgeon as a Baptist and his uh Church of England brothers But the point is that it's the cross of Christ around which we unite. And as soon as we begin to preach Christ Him crucified, we shall be one. Now, Spurgeon's going to give the Church of England a bit of a kicking. There's no one church in the world, he says, that has any right to take a farthing of national money any more than I have. And if there are 10,000 gathered here, it's an unrighteous thing that we should have no subsidy from the state when a paltry congregation of 13 and a half in the city of London is to be supported out of national money. Christ's church will one day reject the patronage of the state. Let us all begin to preach the gospel and we shall soon see that the gospel is self-supporting and wants not the entrenchments of bigotry and narrow-mindedness in order to make it stand. Spurgeon is uh, what we call a disestablishment man. He believes that the Church of England should not have the, the support of the state, doesn't need the support of the state, if it's to be a true church. But when there's union, in Christ Jesus, then those divisions actually fall apart because the most important things are the things that unite us. So the only means of unity we shall ever get will be all of us preaching Christ crucified. And then when every minister feels that anxiety for souls and every minister holds up the remedy for the anxiety of souls, then we can not only maintain our denominational distinctions, but the great bugbear of bigotry and division will have ceased. And so he says, as far as I'm concerned, there's my hand for every minister of God in creation, and my heart with it. I love all them that love the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the uh, the the sweetness of this. It's its both absolutely exclusive. It doesn't matter how religious you are. If you are not one of Christ's, then that union is broken. But if you're truly in Christ, if Christ is first, Christ last, Christ the middle, Christ without end, then that's the bond of holy permanence in unity. And then the last thought, Christ will draw all his people to heaven for he will draw them to himself as the chariot in which souls are drawn to glory. The people of the Lord are on their way to heaven, they are carried in the everlasting arms. O oh, blessed be God, he says, the cross is the plank on which we swim to heaven, the great covenant transport which will weather out the storms and reach its desired haven. This is the chariot, the pillars wherewither of gold, and the bottom thereof silver, lined with the purple of the atonement, Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a model of the preaching that Spurgeon has been recommending. He's been holding up Christ as the first, as the last, as the centre. In one sense, the sermon has done all its work for him, it's turned our eyes and turned our hearts toward Jesus Christ. And therefore, all Spurgeon has left is to call out to sinners, come to this Jesus. You've seen the glory that he gets from his death on the cross. You've heard him exalted as the the great core of all true gospel ministry. And you've seen exactly how he draws people to himself at every point and in every sense where the gospel is truly proclaimed what a wonderful sermon for god's people to stir our hearts to delight our souls to to fill us with with a, a joy and an eagerness to know more of this savior and to declare him more earnestly deep truth with warm experience light and heat not just for the believer but a christ who saves sinners too i hope that that's a blessing to you I hope you'll read over that sermon again yourself and i hope you'll find it full of christ and be taught by it more of who and what christ is and how more effectively to hold him up so that others might know him too my name is jeremy walker and this is a media gratia production i hope you've enjoyed from the heart of spurgeon for more information and to read along with us week by week follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.